Hello and welcome to Torty Talks. This is my eleventh batch of stuff. I've got quite a mix, uh, this three-week group. Some not exactly funny, and some I hope you'll find generally entertaining. The modern householder has many obligations which bear down upon them with great weight. Not least of these, but to my mind one of the most often misused or misunderstood, is the choice of floor covering. The process of planning the eventual solution to this problem can start as early as memory itself. In my case, that was right at the very start. I was a late walker, and so became intimately concerned with the make-up of whatever it was over which I was crawling. Carpet became close to my heart, knees and elbows and stomach. Being only inches from my face most of the time, it made a deep impression on me. Mainly on my knees and hands, it is true, but I can still remember. There is a certain pattern only to be found on a very young, weight-bearing limb joint that I haven't tracked down as an imprint on an adult body. That is a sort of herringbone with a hint of tartan. Other twists in the cord, which cause these infantile dents, showed an impression which I can match with some certainty. More of that later. In one room of my crawl space, carpet had grown stuck to the floor. A matting of it was called rush, I was told. Simple stuff. I knew it had once been as some sort of grass, but it was far too strong to have come from the garden or even the park. Very odd. Looking very carefully on the allotment, I saw faint hints of a long stem that could just have been the weaker cousin of our matting, but each year it had rotted away. Our covering never even thought of rotting. The closest it ever came was mould, and it frequently had a milky smell, faintly musty and not very nice to have a nose that close to. It was then I took to walking. Impressions then moved my elbows, as by then I spent a lot of time lying on my side, playing with things on the floor. But I had one nasty moment when I found a strange pattern on my hip that worried me for ages, until it faded away nearly a whole hour after my finding it. That had been caused in the same way, but it looked much more permanent, having happened without my noticing through my clothes. Splendid stuff was that matting, anyway. Sewn together squares of weaving, which apparently had passed through a phase when that technique was called macrame, often had small gaps between them. These frequently were just the size of a chair leg. An incautiously heavy meal could push such a leg through the matting and onto the lino that still kept the floorboards covered. When, if ever, we tried to move our chair away from the feasting table, it was thus restrained, forcing seconds of the pudding more than once. I had a great love for that matting, and for pudding. Being by then quite a rotund child, the quality of carpet proper was important. Great weight, such as to be found exerted by my new body on said carpets via unclad feet, could cause burns or painful roughness at the very least, if the act of choosing the covering was not taken seriously. Fortunately, in my parental home, it had been. One morning, a large red carpet, all the way from Wilton, had been placed magically in the main room, ready for me to squash. 
There it stayed until the family moved and wore it out over a new floor. Once it had lost most of its luster, I found it had been installed in my bedroom. There it lay for many years, underlying most of my first experiences. One of the truly awful things about moving into a new place is the lack of familiar carpet underfoot, under chair and under very heavy things that will have to be moved again twice to get the carpet under it. In desperation to get something down before the furniture arrives, sometimes it is an easy mistake to make to do just that, put anything down at all. Often the fast-laid stuff will not only be the wrong way round for that room, but also be better put in another. Well, it would have been if it hadn't been cut to fit the one that we stuck it in the first time. Pieces of once large and useful covering are often lost to reuse by the fever of the first few days of a move. For some reason, this did not happen to us on one occasion. We made the best of probably the worst set of carpet bits in the entirety of the UK. They did look rather good, really, but then they were not fixed down and so didn't show themselves at their best. When we moved into the family home, I found the first carpet that I can remember as being mine. It was under some leaves in what became my bedroom. How or why the leaves got there was never discovered, but the carpet looked as if it could have been part of a compost heap itself, inadvertently created indoors. It, too, was held together by stitching, not recommended by the manufacturers. Bald patches linked to less bald parts, showing evidence of past colour and present floorboards. Hard in the corners and other totally inaccessible places, fresh untrampled pile still existed. But it might well not have done, as it seldom if ever saw the light of day, as it was those parts of the now old main room carpet that had been positioned in the centre of my room when this composted relic met its end in the garden. Now it was the edges of the room that met with the bold places. They never said anything, so I left them there. Twice now I have been in the position of being able to afford, and indeed buy, my own carpets. In my first flat I found them. Look once and decide. The choice is made for life. Even if you move, not the carpets themselves, then the design will be forever fixed in the mind. Unshiftable. The problem is shifting the carpet from the floor. This I have yet to manage. Cut as it should be to fit perfectly the odd shape of any choice of room, they will never fit the equally odd and certainly different shape of any other room that I may wish graced by their presence. Shame that. The result of my giving up and leaving my beloved coverings to the grime of new owners does put the selling price up a bit, but the cost to me is of a friend. Indeed, a matching set of colour-coordinated friends. Once the new room is decided on, the next problem is finding the same shop I last bought carpet from and getting more of the same. This I never managed. Every time the shop has just run out or the other shop burnt down yesterday or they claim it never existed. Maybe when they're desperate, they claim they don't sell carpet at all. Last time round, I did find a good carpet match. This is still on the floor of my old flat, but I am not. Living in my new place, they are still in London. It has been a great wrench, but we are both coping well with the separation.
We only met six months before I had to move them. <sighs> In the main room, as I remember, it were carpet tiles. An abomination of the good name of Wilton or Berber Twill, if ever there could be. I'm a plain man of simple but expensive tastes, and carpet tiles manage to be both and yet totally rubbish simultaneously. Brilliant trick, but I would rather it was not done on me, as I sit some rest beneath me on the office floor. In my old workplace, some rested beneath me on an office floor. Going home to the same flooring was so depressing to me, used to luxury, barefoot living, was almost too much. But worse was still to come. Where we lived, money was scarce. There is hardly enough cash to keep the computer in goodies, let alone pay for luxuries like food, so new carpet had to wait. We were offered some, though, new to us. One day it might look new again, design-wise. Never even after total cleaning and recycling could it look carpet new like nice, though once it must have been. Kind, though, the thought, but what to do with one hundred square foot of old green foam back? Carpet the cellar? We have two. Finding an alternative covering to dust for the stairs was an accidental action. I had to prepare the stairs of the old flat for the new carpet that I knew was destined never to stand on. I had to remove all the small bits of under-felts and under-nails as the floral green relic wore before I could leave for points north. These boots I took with me as a sort of daze, having collected everything that I recognised as not belonging to my previous flatmate and taking it up with me. Eventually they did their job in a new place. Which is better, no carpet at all or a really duff one covered in stains of all sorts? Add to the negative side of that the fact that none of those stains have been made by you and perhaps you would throw said carpet away at speed. On the negative reasons for not throwing it as far as possible, which is two foot on a good day, because carpet is heavy, is that the dust that fills the floorboard cracks beneath any removed carpet cannot itself be removed, as the Hoover Junior could not possibly be up to that task. A new and much more violent machine not being available until after the sales, and the furniture having already been piled very high, the old carpet stays put. Almost at once you find your brain forces the stains to vanish, and the disgusting colour suddenly blends beautifully into the new ensemble with an ease found only in habitat catalogues. I don't know about you, but I can presume that because you are all human and alive at the time I'm writing this, that you've been alive for at least a few years before now. Even just a few years covers the subject matter of this podcast, and I've got 60 of them to play with. Let me recap some of the events sketched out variously in a few of my first 50 podcasts. When I was a lad... TV was 4.05, black and white, took time to warm up and was used far less often than the radio. 
That, too, needed time after turning it on before anything would happen other than generate a faint but satisfyingly homely red glow shining through the Bakelite case. These old radios had knobs that had to be manipulated before you could be sure of a sound signal. Indeed, the physical position of the radio would also probably have to be adjusted or even walked around the room a bit before there could be anything audible to work with. The dial showed a line, a bit of wire pulled by a string attached to the knob, which indicated the approximate part of the medium wave band that you were attempting to resonate with in order to hear the broadcast. But once you got a noise, it could be fiddled with in such a way that a very reasonable, recognisable programme would entertain or enlighten your family and friends. Quite a palava, as we used to say in those now long-distant times. The TV had no such tuning issues. There was only one channel. Also, I was told as a child, and that was selected by a rotary switch. I did wonder why there was a selector for one station, but I was really too young to investigate further at the time, being under four. The warm-up period of the television was longer than that of the radio. The sound emerged first, while the picture slowly formed on the small round-cornered screen. Once both were fixed and stable, the aerial being on the roof and not in the set, no repositioning was required and, anyway, the weight of the set made any attempt almost impossible. The shows were short and infrequent, broadcast between 5pm and 10 that night, with an early burst around lunchtime, when children's TV and the news were shown. My memory has it that the evening also started with children's broadcasts, and for me ended with the news, as by then it was my bedtime, no matter what the position of the sun may have been. I very clearly remember sunlight streaming into my bedroom long after night-time started at 6pm. Granted, that would have been in the summer. Following the sun in the winter would have lost me three hours, because dark came at around 3pm at its worst. We did have electricity and curtains back then, but they were used sparingly, as was everything in those days. Also, it felt somehow wrong to my child mind to use artificial lighting controls. Other technology of the time included the washing machine. It had, I think, a door at the top for putting the clothes in. I knew little about this subject, but the garden outside my bedroom window often displayed wet clothes that must have come from there at some point. The process of cleaning was a lengthy one, but unmentioned as it was unavoidable. The fridge was a massive thing. A solid thump as its door closed and a click as it opened. Milk came in thin bottles with thin foil caps and fitted nicely. There was little else to go in there. Fruit juice, for example, was totally absent, being a thing which the Americans had on TV and which we sipped only on holiday trips out. Meat may have been in there somewhere too, although I never looked. The click sound to open it was only possible for a stronger arm than mine. My first words were no meat, however. That was a comment on the fact that I had noticed I hadn't got any that mealtime, having not touched it at all previously. It took me two decades to realise that eating meat was not obligatory, nor was saying short back and sides, please, on entering the barber shop. There was a vacuum cleaner, a noisy thing. I never knew what it did. There was also an iron, I found out by accident, that it got quite hot. The mark lasted for years, but it was not disfiguring. I used to check it was still there, then one year it wasn't. 
There was no telephone that I remember. I was told that Daddy had to climb a telephone pole to call his parents to say I had been born. Only now do I question that story. There almost was a tape recorder composed of parts, a record deck, some planks, a clever box called a preamp, wires that went into the bottom of the radio, and a thing called a gram deck. But I've spoken of that before. There was no other technology at that stage of my youth. I had it tough. In later life, things got more electric. My father, a technical chap at the BBC, built his own amplifier from valves, resistors, capacitors, wires, coils and a magazine. It worked too and only hummed a bit. He built the cabinet for the loudspeaker, filled it with egg boxes to reduce the booming sound of an empty enclosure. One day he found another speaker and made a second amplifier. We called it stereo. The BBC managed to transmit stereo tests by using the BBC television sound and the home service radio station to provide the left and right signals. We carefully set everything up and checked that the speakers were in phase and that the television sound was indeed the left channel and the radio the right. Then, satisfied, we sat at the optimum position at the point of a triangle between the speakers and listened. Did you know that if you tilt your head forward, you hear more high frequencies coming from in front of you? Or is that just us? We have rather splendidly evident ears. The stereo, if such it was, was markedly, frankly, absent. Daddy checked the phase by swapping the wires over to one speaker. The sound was almost stereo. It was early days. We had by then moved and grown to be a family of four. Our TV had grown too. Well, been swapped on multiple occasions and by my tenth birthday, actually on it, became colour, even though almost no programmes were. Trade tests were colour though, as checks to see if the idea both worked and would catch on. These were the forerunners of the BBC Natural History programmes, being both educational and beautiful to look at. One even had Richard Baker on it, talking about how TVs work, I think. Anyway, ours did most of the time, but when it failed, which it did the rest of the time, we just got another one. This continual change of rented knobs stood me in good stead for the technological path that I was about to follow. A Grundig TK5 reel-to-reel -reel machine had arrived at some point, replacing the Gram deck and providing a way to talk to our grandparents. We recorded tapes and posted them back and forth in the 1960s and 70s. My grandparents had sent 80 RPM shellac discs, recordings to America in the 1940s and 50s, so we had to do better than that. One wonderful day... My parents surprised me, utterly. They gave me a tape recorder, a reel-to-reel -reel of my very own, a Heathkit STR1 stereo quarter-inch monster that I immediately loved. I asked why I'd been given it. It wasn't my birthday or anything. They said simply that I had been good. That was the first I knew of it, but my word, I was glad I had been. I recorded everything and hardly ever wiped a moment of tape. I have these tapes to this day, my archive. That is another story.
This one continues with the next bit of tech to reach my childhood home, a Philips cassette recorder. This was, and probably still is somewhere, a lovely-looking 1970s-designed black leather-clad aluminium wonder box. It ran on batteries that somehow never went flat. I think they recharged every time we plugged it in, which well, they weren't supposed to, but we plugged it in often, so maybe that's why it always worked. It was my father's, and so I didn't use it more than three or four times a, a day. When I joined the post office, after far too many wasted years undergoing education, I began to learn things that other people told me to learn. Until that point, I was, for example, unsure of the subject I was waiting to be examined on at school. Outside of the restrictions of scholarly half-life, technology took a leap forward far into the 19th century. The kit I learned to admire and fix had been invented 100 years previously and is still used in signalling on part of London Underground Systems to this day, in 2019, by the way, over 160 years on and counting. Well, he works most of the time. The post office told me that the wires that went to all homes where a telephone had been installed could only pass the tinny sounds we expected to hear from old telephones on sticks in black and white films. I proved this was not the case. My school friend and I, who then both worked at the post office, had connected tape recorder microphones and amplifiers to the telephone innards and got high-fidelity sound back and forth between Alberton and Ealing with no difficulty. I later learned that when the BBC did that, they were charged a lot to use these music lines. Well, I could have asked us, we'd have done it for less. I think about now, the magic really started to build. I worked, unhappily, at the top of the post office tower once for a month or two. But it was there that I was introduced to microwaves. These had not entered any kitchen as yet, but were sending signals across London by means of large ears mounted just under the rotating restaurant, which by then never moved more than a bit unless the wind was high due to the troubles. There was a room at the base of the tower that was filled with long desks covered with TV monitors set against a wall festooned with yet more, monitoring the multiple video links that came through this communication hub, this technological marvel that could withstand a nuclear bomb blast, but would probably have lost all its windows and so been put out of action if it subsequently rained. It was from there I phoned the BBC as a post office engineer and set up these networking links very manually. After I had been chased out of the tower on my last day by the threat of fire extinguishers, I joined the BBC myself. There, technology was king, queen, princess and prince and all the hangers-on all together. What a place to work. What wonders, what power, what responsibility. I was only 18 at the time. From that point on, as tech improved, I took it so much in my stride that I didn't really notice it as being new tech, just another thing to learn. As time passed, the number of knobs reduced and the number of things the decreasingly sized kit could do increased Eventually, indeed now, almost all the mass of tech that was stuffed into television centre fits in my shirt pocket. I believe it can also make telephone calls. Now that was all massive enough, 
But what is to come, and what has in part already arrived, utterly shades that which came before, but yet stands upon its shoulders. I know how a telephone used to work, and how a video recording used to be made, and how we used to edit sound and vision. None of that is true today, although I was a professional at all of the above. Kids less than 10 years old can and now do do a better job than any of us back then could. And all self-taught. Okay, so were we, but it took several years to get good at it. Not so now. These kids would be called whiz if they had had their kit back then. They know nothing, though, of the history behind the marvels from which they expect and demand and often get absolute obedience. I, on the other hand, who can and also do get new stuff to do my bidding, know better. I know it's all magic, impossible, stupendous and utterly incomprehensible at base level. Should it all go wrong? No one remembers how it got to be so clever as it is today. And so we would have to start all over again. I worry about that sort of thing. I want people to know what has gone into this daily used ubiquitous kit. That way there is a chance it could be used far better and less wastefully than it is today. And if it breaks, could be fixed and not junked. The things thrown away on the streets are a wonder to baffle the mind of the highest tech brain of the 70s and even 80s and frankly the 90s. To push it further, go and match your old phones with ones you use today. See? What a change there! Now project that degree of change forward and upward and steeper into the 2030s. And what do you see? Well, the best minds can't predict that, but they are making it happen. There are more brilliant people and more people totally now than ever before in human history. And they all have or soon shall have total access to the mass knowledge of all humanity via the Internet. Kids whose parents were subsistence farmers now build power stations for their villages. They recycle our waste and make things our parents never imagined, but which we throw away. The rest of the world is about to catch up and overtake us. And do it without needing fossil fuel, because they don't have any. They've got, like us though, plenty of sun and nanoparticles, integrated circuits, artificial intelligence, space rockets, satellites and so on and are making their own phones. Phones that make it unnecessary to have banks. Think of that. No banks. No need for banks. Hmm. This mass stampede into the unknown future is taking us headlong into the singularity, the point at which it is impossible for us to know what is going on, even though it was us that started it off. Time to get knowledgeable, folks. Mm -hmm.